So I want to draw your attention now to Mark chapter 8. I'm going to begin reading at verse 22. Now, kids, I want you to listen up too. You know how I oftentimes say here that you're very precious to us, and we just don't want to say that because it's a nice thing to say, but we want you to be engaged, and you are very able to be engaged in this story. And as I read it, I'm going to read it slowly, and if you can read, I want you to read it up there, or if you have a Bible, or if you can't read, I just want you to listen. But it's a really simple story, so let's look at it. And they came to Bethsaida. Now, Bethsaida was a small town, not a big city, small town. It is located today in what is called the Golan Heights region of Israel. It's a very short distance from the Sea of Galilee. Okay, so that's where they're at geographically. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him, that's Jesus, a blind man, and begged him to touch him. And he, meaning Jesus, took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spat on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I do. I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored. He saw everything clearly. And he sent them to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Simple story, really short story, one of the shorter accounts of healing in the Bible. Kids, how long did it take for me to read that? Hmm? Maybe, maybe a minute, if I read it a little faster, I could maybe have read it under a minute. Okay? Now, because it's a short story, it's very easy in, let's say you're at home and you're reading the Bible, and let's say you're reading all of chapter 7 or all of chapter and all of chapter 8, and you read that, you can easily skip over verses 22 and 26 through 26 and say, oh, there's another healing. Jesus healed a blind man. Okay, and then you move on. But we can't do that this morning. We need to, to pay attention to this very short story and realize that there is actually more in this story than, than we read at first reading. All right? So we're going to be taking a look at this. And I want to say this one thing um, before we begin, you know, the Bible consists of Old and New Testament. The first two-thirds of the Bible, Old Testament, last third, the New Testament. Do you know that you can find miracles or healings in both the Old and New Testament? We tend to think of healings mainly during the ministry of Jesus, but we also see that many years before Jesus came into this world in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, we find like lepers being healed, like there's a man named Naaman who was healed of his leprosy. Or we find even people being raised from the dead. Can you imagine that? Okay. But you will never in the Old Testament find someone being healed of blindness. You only find that during the ministry of Jesus Christ. He healed blind people. So it makes you ask the question, why did he heal blind people? And what does that all mean? Well, we're going to look at that. Okay. Now, I want to get to the story right now. And kids, what I want you to do is I want you to use your imagination. Because when you're young, 
And I think this falls away a little bit when you're older, but when you're young, you can, you can picture things in your mind. So I want you to picture things in your mind, and I want you to imagine that you're blind, like this man here in this passage. So that means you can't see. Now, when you go to grade school, at some point in grade school, you're going to teach, if I remember correctly, we have five senses, right? And we have the sense of sight. And so many of you kids, you, can, you, can, you look up at me and you can see me. And if you're a child and your eyes aren't going so bad, because that's what happens when you get older, you can see me rather clearly. But let's say you can't see. So you can taste food. You can feel the touch of someone. So if, if I put my hand on your hand, you can, I say, do you feel that? And you go, yeah, I can feel that, right? Um, you can hear the sounds of birds, but you just can't see. Now imagine being a part of this village. It's called Bethsaida. It's a very small town. It's a town probably where everybody knows each other's business. Everybody knows each other's names, that kind of thing. And people know you as a blind person. And let's say one day... Someone comes to you, and they take you by the hand, and you feel that hand. You go, okay, and they said, I'm going to lead you somewhere, and you're going, where are we going? And they say, we're going to lead you to Jesus. Jesus is in our town today. And you've probably heard of Jesus before, because many people who never met Jesus personally during his ministry actually heard reports about him, how he was this great miracle worker, and how he preached very powerfully, and he taught with authority and all of that. And so you heard about him, but you never met him. Well, these people will say, well, you know what? He's in town today, and somebody takes you by the hand, and says, we're going to take you to Jesus. And at first, you're kind of scared. We, we, adults talk about apprehension. You're just kind of, that means you're kind of nervous. But at the same time, you're kind of excited. So this person takes you by the hand, and as you start walking for a while, you hear people in a distance, and there's a crowd that has gathered, and as you're brought into that crowd, you realize that's where Jesus probably is, and he is, and you hear people in the crowd actually begging Jesus, please, please heal, heal this person, heal you of your blindness. Because you can't go to a doctor, you can't go to hospitals. So people are desperate at that time. So, so they're begging Jesus to heal you. And Jesus is your last chance to, to be able to open your eyes and see. So they take you to Jesus, and then what happens is you feel another hand on your hand, and it's the hand of Jesus. And he starts leading you along, and you're walking with Jesus for some time. And you're, you're, maybe it's a few minutes, maybe it's five or ten minutes or what have you. Bethsaida is not a big town. You're living in a small town. So it takes you a little bit of a while, but finally you get to what we call the outskirts of town, on the outside of town. And it's just you and Jesus alone. You have alone time with Jesus. And then there's a little bit of a quiet, and then you hear this. And you hear Jesus spitting, and all of a sudden you feel wet on your eyes. Spitting in my eyes? He's spitting in your eyes. And i got to tell you, I, you can read commentaries on this. People have conjectures about what the meaning of the spit was. I don't know if we know for sure, but it was some kind of means where Jesus identified with the person that he was going to heal. So Jesus spits in your eyes, kids. And then what he does is he, lay his hand, he lays his hands on your eyes, and then he asks you the question, do you see anything? Do you see anything? And you say... I do. I do see something. I, I see 
I see men. I, 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 see, I see men walking about, but they look like stick figures. They, they look like trees that are actually walking. Now, this man likely was not born blind. There's a man in the Gospel of John, chapter 9, who was born blind. You were probably not born blind, because if you, if you were born blind, you wouldn't even know what a man looks like. So this man probably became blind later on. And so he said, I see, I see, let's go back to you kids. I, I, you say, I see, I see men walking. They, they look like stick figures. They look like trees that are actually, trees that are walking. And so what Jesus does then, as we start ending the story, is he places his hands on your eyes once again, and then something happens. Now you can open your eyes, and as you see me clearly, you see Jesus clearly, and you see everything around you clearly. And you go, just what happened here? What just went on? Well, Jesus healed you. So you went from blindness to then blurriness to clarity to beauty. For years and years, you've never experienced something like that. And you're just overjoyed, right? And, and that's the story. And then the last thing we read is, Jesus sent this man to his home saying, do not even enter the village. He didn't want that man to go back into the crowd. And why didn't he not want the man to go back into the crowd? Sometimes he would tell people after he healed them, go tell others about it. But there were other times where that didn't happen. He says, I don't want you to tell anybody about it. And there's various conjectures about that, thoughts from commentators regarding that. But probably there are certain times in Jesus' ministry where he wanted the news about him to be told. And there's other times, probably because he knew the towns or the cities that he was in, that he knew what kind of reaction he was going to get from people, that if he healed this blind man, there were going to be many others, and they were all going to say, heal me, heal me, heal me, and Jesus had other things to do, and we know in the ministry of Christ that the primary reason why he came was not to heal, but to preach and teach, and that the healings were to be a confirmation of the message that he was preaching, that he's the king in the kingdom. And at this point, for some reason in his ministry, he said to the man, don't go back to the village, because I don't want all these people following me at this point, thinking that I'm this is the great miracle worker. I have other things that I need to do. I need to move on. But at any rate, that's the story. How long did it take for me to explain that? I don't know, seven, eight minutes or something like that. But that's, that's the simple story. So when we look at that story, we see what's going on, we have to ask ourselves the question, why, why is this story in the Bible? And by the way, if you're somewhat new to the Christian faith in the Bible, there are four books in the beginning of the New Testament that speak about the life and the ministry of Jesus. We call them the Gospels. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And sometimes when you read about an account of healing in the Gospels, all four Gospel writers record it, but Mark is the only one who records this. Hmm. He felt it was important. Why did he feel it was important? Let me offer you some suggestions. Maybe not just some suggestions, some, some clear things about, about um, why this is included in the Bible. I think this is included in the Bible because it's part of the overall miraculous ministry of Jesus Christ, the healing ministry of Jesus Christ, which we could raise then the general question, why, 
why did Jesus perform all these miracles in the Bible? And let us understand this. This is very clear. Jesus performed all these miracles in the Bible in order to demonstrate very simply, and let me explain it simply, who he was and what he came to do. Who was Jesus? Jesus was the Son of God. Jesus was the great sovereign king. And when Jesus came, the Bible says he came preaching his kingdom. So when he performs these miracles, Jesus is saying, you need to understand who I am. I am the great king who has come to bring about my kingdom. Now, when you um, come across the word kingdom in the Bible, don't think first and foremost about a place. Like when a king rules over a kingdom, he rules over a geographical kingdom. When Jesus uses the word kingdom, most often he is referring not to a place, but a power. But a power. And it's very interesting when you read your Bibles and you look at the ministry of Christ, and when you look at the preaching of the apostles, how often you not only discover the content of that preaching and teaching, but there is power that comes with that preaching and teaching. And that's what you want even in the church today. And that's what every pastor should pray for, is that when he preaches, he gives you not only the proper interpretation of the passage and the content of the passage, so you leave with something, maybe that you didn't know before, But his desire and his prayer is that the unction of the Spirit would come, that the power of the Spirit would come, and the Spirit would combine with the content of this book so that your hearts may be refreshed, that you might understand what is being said, and that you might go into the world as better followers of Christ. So there's power here. And when you consider what Jesus Christ has come to do, He's come to bring his healing power, his restorative, renewing power to people who are around him. The power to save those who are lost, the power to heal those who are broken, the the, the power to do all these things, the power to, to restore people's lives as he did with this man. And here's the thing. I want you to notice that the healing in this passage is not like most of all the other healings that we find during Jesus' ministry. It's not instantaneous. It's not immediate. But it comes in stages. Now, this is different, by the way. It's really kind of a two-stage healing that's going on here. But that's different than what you find in the other healings, including blind individuals. A.V. Guys, if you put uh, up... Uh, Luke chapter 7, do you have that up there? Uh, There you go. Is it Luke's? No, I'm sorry, Luke 18. Luke 18, give me a second to turn in my own Bible there. Now here's another account among a number of Jesus' healing of a blind beggar. Now look at the overhead and follow with me. As he drew near Jericho, that's Jesus, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging, and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And this blind beggar cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. In other words, kids, he's saying, this man is saying, Lord, help me to see. All I want to do is see. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. 
And notice, and immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God, and all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. When you look at many of the other accounts of the, the miraculous healings of Jesus in the Bible, Jesus either touches individuals or he speaks a word to them, and just like that, immediately, instantaneously, they can see or they can hear or they can speak clearly or they've been delivered of demons or these kinds of things. So, you know, a question that we may raise at this point is like, okay, then why, why are most of these healings instantaneous and why in the case here does Mark go out of his way in contrast to the other gospel writers to say, okay, no, I'm going to record an instance that the others do not that shows us that Jesus heals in stages. And I think the primary reason, maybe not the exclusive reason, but the primary reason is to show us that this is how individuals are brought to Christ. And how individuals are actually coming to not only contact with Christ, but surrender to Christ. Sometimes they come in stages and sometimes they come in a very short amount of time. Sometimes it's like, like that. Let me give you two examples. First one of being um, instantaneous. And the examples that I give you now, no doubt a number of you are going to be able to identify with. Okay? The first one is, 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 is coming to Christ in, in a very short amount of time. Um, many of us are familiar with the name R.C. Sproul. And in fact, I think on the book table we might have a book or two of his. And, and um, I remember reading this on a biography written by a man named Stephen Nichols on the life of R.C. Sproul. It's really important to read biographies of, of great Christians, by the way. And R.C. Sproul, by his own admission, said that he grew up in a church, but it was what we call a liberal church. That means... They seemed to be doing all the right things, but in reality, the gospel was not being preached from the pulpit, and he never really knew who Jesus was and why he needed Jesus for the forgiveness of his sins. So he went to college, and when he was a freshman in college, uh, he walked into a cafeteria one day, and he saw four or five guys from the football team having a Bible study together. And these guys saw Sproul come in, because I think Sproul had some real uh, desire for sports at that time. He said, hey, Sproul, come over here. And he came over there and he saw that they had some Bibles open and one guy who was leading the Bible study said, hey, come here. I want you to take a, take a look at this passage. And he pointed to it. He said, what do you think this means? And it was from Ecclesiastes 11, verse 3, I believe it was, where it says this, that if a tree falls to the north or to the south, where it falls there it lies. Now, I have no idea what the text means. If you look up commentaries, which I did this past week, commentators, there's, there's no one who's too dogmatic about, well, this is exactly what it means. So poor Sproul, you know, he has to try to figure this out. So what do you think it means? And Sproul looked at it, and it is amazing how God works sometimes, but he'll take the most obscure of texts sometimes and work a heart of change in a person's life and when Sproul heard that, there was something that went on in him that made him identify with that tree. And he thought, I'm that tree. I'm that fallen tree. I'm that dead tree. I am that rotting tree. 
And that night, he went back to his dorm room, and he got on his knees, and he prayed that God would forgive him of his sins. And at that point, he committed his life to Christ. And in terms of what we call the reform camp of Christianity, he became one of the biggest proponents of the gospel and the reformed faith in our modern age. You know? But God used that text to draw him to Christ. Now, the reason I bring that out is that that was almost instantaneous. Like, it was like God, it's like God had this, this bow and arrow, and he just shot it, and it went right into his heart and changed him through that text. Now, I don't know, um, I've talked with people in the ministry before where they'll say, you know, it doesn't happen too often, but sometimes they'll, I remember one guy just saying, I went to church, I was not a Christian, and I remember the, the pastor just read one text, had to do with sinking sand, and he just identified with it, and that was a change in his life. There, there, there are people, maybe, maybe some of you here can maybe identify with that. So sometimes we, we have people coming instantaneously to Christ, like, like that, that man who was instantly healed in Luke chapter 18. But sometimes what we find is that we, we, we are drawn to Christ, not instantaneously, but, but gradually, in stages, kind of incrementally. Um, this oftentimes happens, by the way, for those who grew up in the Christian faith. And I know many of us have had the privilege of growing up in the Christian faith. I can ask you the question, when did the Spirit of God touch you and you just knew that you belonged to Christ? Now, there are some other Christians that may challenge you in that way, and they want to know basically the date, the hour, maybe the minute. When were you converted? And you know what happens? People grow up in the Christian faith, they get a little bit squirmy because they're like, I don't know if I can answer that question. And then, and then you get a little guilty, like, am I converted? Am I not? Here's what happens oftentimes in the Christian faith, is that you're born to Christian parents, you're baptized into the Christian church, you've had the tutelage of your parents, the training of your parents, the training of the church, maybe you've been catechized, maybe you've gone to a Christian school, and you've had all these privileges and then when you get older, you look back and somebody asks you the question, well, when were you converted? And the answer is, oftentimes, I don't know because there's never been a day in my life where I didn't know Jesus. That's the most natural way, by the way. You shouldn't feel guilty if that's your experience. In other words, God was working His irresistible grace in your life in very slow stages, and a number of people, a number of individuals were feeding into you from your earliest of years so, so it was a very gradual thing. And you look at your life and you go, I've never known a day when I didn't belong to Christ. It's like, it's like a, a Puritan once said this. I forget who the Puritan was. He, he made this analogy that, that if, some, if somebody asked you this morning, hey, when did the sun rise? Do you know, kids, do you know when the sun rose this morning? Like what, was, what minute did it rise? Nobody could tell us here. I don't know. I don't know. All I know is that it rose. <laughs> Same thing with faith. All I know is I got it. Praise God. Now, one other thing, there are sometimes individuals who did not grow up in the Christian church, and they, they also are not like R.C. Sproul, brought to the Lord instantly, like the healings that we find in the Bible here, but they actually experience what this blind man did in the Gospel of Mark, where it came in stages. Give you one other quick example. Many of you have heard of C.S. Lewis. He's an apologist, a defender for the Christian faith, wrote wonderful books, Mere Christianity, Surprised by Joy, 
Um, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, some of you kids have uh, been reading that in school, right? Written by C.S. Lewis. Do you know how C.S. Lewis became a Christian? By God's grace, but God's grace worked in this way. C.S. Lewis did not really grow up in a Christian home. When he was young, he was an atheist. I believe he said he didn't believe in any God. He didn't believe in any religion. Then he became an agnostic. That means he, he wasn't sure. Then he became a theist. That means he was a believer in a God of some kind. Like people say, well, there's a supreme deity of some kind. And then finally, God's grace worked in him, and he became what we call a Christian theist. That is, he became a believer in the God of the Bible. But you see the stages that he went through? Um, A.V. Guy, can you put up um, the quote by C.S. Lewis very quickly? When he was 17, he said, I believe in no religion. There is absolutely no proof for any of them. That's how he began. By the grace of God, 15 years later, he said, Christianity is God expressing himself in real things, namely the incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then, as he looked back on his life, he realized that it was finally two years after that where he surrendered to Christ completely. You see the stages? Everybody's story is different. Maybe you have a story this morning where you kind of go, I remember the hour, I remember the day. But maybe for a lot of us, we just say, I've never known a time where I didn't know Jesus. And maybe for some of us here this morning... We say, whether we grew up in the Christian home or not, honestly, if I'm going to be truthful, I don't know if I've ever really surrendered my life to Christ, which you have to ask yourself the question, why? What's the hesitation? Was there skepticism? Was there a bad church experience? Was there a bad home experience? Maybe, quite honestly, you look at your life and you go, you know what, there are things in my life that I don't want to give up. Because when you surrender to Christ, that's a complete surrender. You've got to die to yourself in order to follow him. It's the most beautiful thing in the world. It's the hardest thing in the world. But it's worth it. And then maybe, maybe you, you say, I'm one of those people who knows Jesus up here. Yeah, I know parts of the Bible. But I haven't surrendered to him in here. And let me tell you, unless you surrender to him, up here and in here, and you start to follow him, you are always going to be like the man initially in this passage. You are going to be blind. Or at best, your vision is going to be blurred, but you will never see Christ clearly, and you will never fully follow him. Right? But if you do, if you're like R.C. Sproul in, his, in his, his dorm room, just crying out to God, committing his life to Christ, only then will you be able to sing, truly, the song that we're going to sing in just a moment, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found. I was blind, but now... I see clearly, right? And what Christ does for any one of us and what Christ does in all the miracles of the New Testament, he promises, and this is the big picture, he promises one day to do for the whole of his physical world. 
One day, everything that we see in this world, war, carnage, death, human trafficking, environmental damage, you, you, you list it. One day, all things are going to be made new. And that's part of the message of the miracles as well. Christ has came. Christ came to free us. And one day, he's come to completely free the creation, the world in which we are living. A.V., if you can put up that one final passage from the book of Isaiah where we read, The wolf will dwell with the lamb, and one day the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and a little child will lead them, and the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That, that is good news. That's the good news of this passage, and that's the good news that is offered to us every single week, including this coming Sunday. What is your story? What is your experience? The call of the passage here is like this blind man who is brought to Jesus. May we come to Jesus. And may we confess him and may we find, find freedom and joy, whether it be for the hundredth time in our life or maybe even for the first time. Let us draw near to Jesus for he alone can heal us of our every affliction, including even spiritual blindness. Let's come and let's pray to him. Heavenly Father, Lord, once again, we are so grateful that in your love and in your care, you sent Jesus into this world as the great king who has come to bring the restorative power of his kingdom. God, we pray, as we pray every week, Lord, draw us to Christ. And as we gather here again this afternoon and look at the indispensability of faith, whereby like a blind man we take hold of Jesus and experience restoration from his hand. God, we pray that you will bless that service and you will bless this sermon here to us this morning. And oh God, how we pray that all of us here, you would draw anew to yourself. And when we sing that beautiful hymn, that historic hymn, Amazing grace, we pray, O oh Lord, that we may sing that from a heart of conviction, applying it not just to others, but to ourselves as well. God grant that we pray in Jesus' name, amen.